0: Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. In this week's episode, we welcome Joel Vargas, who's the Vice President of Programs for JFF, which is an organization that JFF stands for Jobs for the Future. We spend a bulk of our time today talking about a report where he was the, the lead author, uh, which he has dubbed the Big Blur, which is, you know, uh, I guess the longer title is How to Blur the Line Between High School and College. I'm going to read to you just quickly a synopsis of the report so you understand what the main bulk of our conversation is today. Jobs of the Future, a national nonprofit focused on education in the workforce, released a report that argues for a radical restructuring of education for grades 11 through 14. It advocates for a new kind of education institution that is neither high school nor college starting after the second year of high school. These institutions would combine coursework from the last two years of high school with the more specific education and training of community college to train students for future careers. Students would graduate with certificate or associate degree. The report suggests that such an option would eliminate a barrier to college completion by removing sometimes fraught transition between high school and college and would prepare students for the workforce starting at age 16. JFF Vice President Joel Vargas, a lead author on the report says that said broadening college access means not being hidebound by traditional thinking in the high school to college to career transition. Instead, we should recognize that young people today need a multiplicity of pathways from education into careers, not just the options created more than a century ago. Joel is an incredibly thoughtful individual who looks at the status quo and thinks about what it could be for all kids, for all adults, for the future of our country. And someone who has taken the time to do a lot of research, he's very, very thoughtful, a great conversationalist, and we just basically geek out on the big blur and what's possible for our kids. So if this is something, if you're someone who likes to think outside the box, look for solutions to be innovative for your school, your district, your students, uh, for even our country, it's a great conversation. It was really fun to have it with them. So uh, enjoy. Again, if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. Forward this on to people that you think would be interested in this topic. We appreciate all your support and enjoy this conversation. It was, one of, um, it was a really fun one for me. So enjoy it. Joel, thank you for making time to be with us today. Dustin, thanks for having me. Look forward to the conversation. I am very excited. So uh, as you know, our first question is the same. Who are you and what do you love about what you do?
1: Well, I'm a program vice president at Jobs for the Future, uh, and JFF, we also go by our acronym, um, it has been around for almost 40 years now. It's a nonprofit organization. Um, the work over that time is always focused on the mission of creating and scaling up solutions that can really transform our American education and workforce systems so that um. It achieves actually economic advancement for all equitably, and it's uh, in part the segue to the second part of your question. My answer to it is that's a big mission, and um, I'm passionate about that. Um, when I came to the organization almost 20 years ago, I came out of um, designing and running small programs that I think had a deep impact. Um, know that they did. Uh, they had their constraints. One is, you know, they were kind of like we would serve young people, um, personalize their experience, try to help them navigate, you know, through um, middle school into really good high school programs that would prepare them for college. And so much could go wrong along the way, in spite of all the support that we gave them, um, and due to the nature of what we were, how we were trying to support them, you know, it was intense, resource intensive. And it just, it wasn't enough on so many levels as important and as impactful as it was. I wanted to have a bigger impact at scale. And I got the notion that we needed to change systems. We needed to change policies to do that. And so, you know, I went to graduate school for a few years, studied that problem of the American high school uh, and its lack of connection to what comes next for too many young people, especially first-generation college students like myself, like I had been. You know, who kind of grew up in a program that changed my life trajectory, but it served a hundred kids a year in the city of San Francisco. I was like a lottery pick. And there were so many young people who could have benefited from that. So I got the notion that, you know, there ought to be ways that the system ought to make this my outcomes more of a reality for all. And by the time I finished graduate school, JFF was starting an initiative called the Early College High School Initiative. I can talk more about that. But essentially, it combined, high school with college targeting low income communities to enable students to earn an associate's degree by the time they graduated high school mm-hmm. and i thought that was really um a very compelling notion that um kind of could serve as you know one version of the new american high school and so i just got excited about that and also you know just my one of my bosses at the time who was the co-founder of jff hillary pennington I remember going into her office and talking about early on in my tenure there and talking about a little small intervention. And we saw some research and it looked really promising. And she said, well, is it scalable? And for the first time, you know, it really occurred to me like that is going to be the driving question that I make my vocation. You know? yeah. and, and at JFF, it's really been all about supporting those kinds of solutions and making sure that they scale.
0: I think I, I love that you kind of landed there because I mean you you've studied at one of the most prestigious places on the planet to study. And when I was a practitioner working in a district, you know I have, I have friends that were at the same schools that you've studied, and sometimes I felt like they had these great ideas because they're in an incubator space where there's all these brilliant people trying to solve and get crazy with solving big problems, which is awesome, by the way. I do never want to like discourage that but from my lens of implementing and working with turnaround schools at in inner city, St. Louis, I, I had to be practical. Right. And I, I think that's it, a tough balance. So how do you find the balance of being able to dream big? Cause sometimes if that's a pendulum but dream big and be practical. I probably land too far on the practical side and we've got to be able to do both. So how do you find that balance for yourself?
1: Yeah, it's a great, great question, Dustin. I, I, um, one approach, it's, it's incomplete, but one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, I'm trying to say this though, so it doesn't sound like we're experimenting on young people, right? It can come out that way, but I, like, I think you have to like not be afraid to try some things out yep. and learn real fast from them, including by what you're doing wrong. So, yep. you know, just to even get concrete about this, you know, the early college original design, which was small schools, you know, maybe 200 students to 400 students, mm. they, um, they often were implemented, um, you know, in charter schools, but that, that ended up only being like a quarter of the of the mix of early colleges around the country. But let's say suffice it to say they were in, you know, school districts with innovative superintendents, and they innovative school building level leaders who were willing to try this out with a little bit of private funding. It wasn't that much. They they were using mostly their public resources. And it was, you know, wildly successful um, for the most part. You know, not 100%, nothing is, but, you know, it, it went pretty well um, by, by a lot of the most rigorous research methods you can use. And then so we decided, JFF, like, what's the next step? That's not scale enough. Those are small schools, 280 that sounds impressive. It is, you know, in its own in its in in some respects, but it's not where most of the young people in the country go to high school, you know, and would get at this kind of supported transition to college. So we tried it in larger school systems. And I'll tell you, it was a real mixed bag. We learned some hard lessons. It was pretty um humbling to understand, like, you know, you could do harm if you don't make sure that the right instructional supports are in place, the right kind of wraparound supports, a personalization that is, you have to work double hard in those settings, in the big school settings to make young people feel the kind of personalized support that they got in those small schools, you know, that enabled them to be so successful in the college courses while they were in high school. So I think, you know, back to the original point, You got to like if we didn't try it, though, we wouldn't have learned those lessons and been able to apply it later to be more pragmatic, still thinking big, you know, but also being grounded in kind of like what works and what do we need to avoid?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the problems that you're you're trying to solve as an organization are inspiring in front of us every day and uh, what has what we have tried is clearly not working by about every statistical measure, and so to your point, you know, uh, I think we've tried practical. So how do we figure out the lean more on the side of pendulum of try new, right? And so uh, one of the things that has inspired me to really want to talk to you is the report that you wrote, which was um, called "How to Blur Lines Between High School and College." Can you just Tell our listeners, you know, what was this report and why was it written?
1: Yeah, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, we called it. Um, you know, the it was funny because the the pet name we had inside the organization for it was the big blur.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know if I should say it that way because it's it's written throughout the uh, document. Um, <laughs> it is. Uh, all right, the big blur is what I would prefer to call it, but yeah, yeah, I just wanted to honor the title. Oh,
1: go for it, go for it. We found that it's actually kind of captivated the imagination of uh, opinion leaders like you and others, as and it, it rolls off the tongue somehow. So at some yep. at some point, if this becomes something that's supposed to have more public appeal, I think we'll have to revisit the name. But certainly for the the wonky, you know, opinion leader kind of policymaker audience, it's it's kind of caught a little bit of fire, and. Um, I think the reason is is that we did go out on a on a bolder edge, um, and bolder ledge. I don't know, out on a limb. Uh, I guess I would say, um, based on you know, I would say evidence based. I'll get back to this. You know, evidence based practices like early college, which have a strong evidence base behind them, like dual enrollment. Um, but we sort of took it to the hilt and said, okay, we've got a few problems here. One is. We know our economy really demands a more educated and uh, skilled workforce, usually meaning some kind of post-secondary credential, uh, if not degree. And our systems are not producing it fast enough. Um, Really, they're especially failing young people um, from Black and Latinx backgrounds, students from low-income backgrounds, et cetera. And they're they're our fastest growing populations in the country. So how are we going to How can we get get to, you know, more improved outcomes faster because the data show and as measured by the Lumina Foundation and others, we are moving the needle, but it's really, really slow. Um, And, you know, and and another problem is we continue to see like kind of at every critical transition point, how many young people we lose because the systems weren't designed to work together, namely K-12, college and the connection to what happens in a career and just some points around that you know you can be a student who ostensibly prepares in your high school take all take all the right courses get a, get a good score on whatever tests be you know finally figure out your way to like which colleges am I going to apply to you have to figure that that whole thing in the process go through financial aid processes which we know so many young people don't do they could get a And they don't get it because they don't fill out the form because it's so complicated. The FAFSA, you know, that their whole like state campaigns to get young people to fill out their FAFSA form. And then if they get in, like manage to take that step, so many don't show up. They melt away in the summer because, you know, the bureaucracy just eats them up. Like any little, and I'm talking about students who don't have, you know, um, a a family uh, tradition of college going, right? Just to illustrate you know, and any little barrier like, oh, we need form XYZ. It's humongous for young people who like, you know, they're just trying to like, you know, make some money in the summer so that they can barely afford to like start their first year in college. So any of this kind of small stuff, that's just a bureaucratic hurdle for families who know how to handle this is just is too huge to overcome for a lot. Um, So that's why they don't show up. And if they show up, they probably go, you know, the chances are they might end up in remedial courses, like the college system and say you're not really ready, and then they can get stuck in those courses, and they can so many flame out before they even get to their second year, et cetera, et cetera. You can look at the completion rates in the country and they haven't improved all that much, uh, though a little bit. So um well, this, uh, it, yeah, go ahead, Dustin.
0: sorry sorry, jump jump in there just because I want to uh, clarify and give you a lane to go a little bit further. i told you what my wife does before we started and her, you know, really close friend runs the uh, to and through college program for their district. And it seems from talking to her as well as reading your report and listening to you that we don't necessarily have a college acceptance issue. It seems like we have a college persistence issue in some way. And that may be too narrow the way I just described it, but like, We can, kids can get in from all different backgrounds, but can they really utilize it? Um, Do you agree with this? And, you know, if so, what are the factors uh, that lead to this gap? I do. I,
1: it's a persistence issue, Dustin, and it's also a connection to career Mm -hmm. issue because then you can finish and so many young people don't necessarily know, like they've gone through a major and then they decide, like, that's not what I want to do, you know, and there's increasingly an unclear ROI. Uh, on college completion, you know, and sort of question marks, even though, you know, long-term it tends to pay off, especially if you complete, if you don't, you can be saddled with debt that you are not in a position to pay. And so where I was going with all this is like, you asked about the big blur. We basically said like, why do we have all this separation and these junctures and hoops that people have to go through when, you know, we know what the economy needs. This is a these are systems that proliferated during the industrial age. They were not built for today's economy that demands so many more skilled uh, and post-secondary trained um, workers. Couldn't we design something that was more seamless, you know, and um, you know, that actually fit the needs of older adolescents? So roughly 16 to 20 year olds. Uh, roughly encompassing grades 11 through the first two years of college. So we say 11 through 14 for short. Could we build institutions and systems that support these institutions that would serve them, focus on their needs? They would complete a college credential, post-secondary credential as a default experience, no cost, just kind of like how we fund compulsory education through uh, grade 12 now they would be co-designed with employers, uh, especially at the regional level, which is kind of where most labor markets, um, that's a a focus point uh, there uh, based on regional needs and get employers to co-design with, um, higher ed and secondary school leaders. Although, as you can tell, we're sort of blurring those lines is what we're recommending, but build something built for purpose. Uh, for the economy and, uh, um, you know, ensure that students are have a way to advance economically more seamlessly than they do now, which is having to go through all these hurdles, which don't work because so many fall over them on their way towards trying to navigate that on their own.
0: So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm again, as I told you before, I've already sent your, your uh, report out to several people before we even met because I'm so fascinated by what you guys are trying to do here. A couple of things that I, I wonder, um, you know, my wife went to a liberal arts university, you know, a small DePaul University in Indiana, and I'm pretty envious of the type of education that she got in terms of like the d- desire to learn. We've had a couple of guests talk about uh, higher education and say the same things you're saying in terms of there's a disconnect from what how the system's set up to what we're trying to produce within this structure. Where does liberal arts education fall and where does um, kind of like the love of learning fall in a way to where it's not just about an outcome or a job?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I have a couple of answers to this I promise to try to be brief and cogent about this. We're, po- and we're podcasting. For- <laughs> you don't have to be brief. We're good. I think for one, you know, um, not exclusively, but I think it all starts, you know, in, in early adolescence when, um, you know, people, young people are able to start thinking more abstractly, you know, and about their place in the world. All the kind of liberal arts, humanities, important questions, which make, you know, people good citizens uh, who are able to, and problem solvers, you know, and learners, lifelong learners. And it it can't stop there. I just, I think what we're recommending is, you know, grade 11 uh, in these structures, 11 through 14, would not exclude liberal arts, learning or say it would have to be integrated and incorporated. You could begin though, you know, it would become a little bit more career, you know, obviously career focused is what we're suggesting. Um, a little bit more specialized, at least trying out, uh, having routes to try out some things through work-based learning experiences, including internships, apprenticeships, you know, learning. And I think then, you know, in those upper grades, kind of uh, extending that uh, lifelong learning, um skill uh into you know applying it while you're at work so the you know really thinking about how can we integrate learning and work learning and earning because those experiences also should be paid and i i think the reason where one of the reasons we push for that is i think you can learn while through your work if there's a curriculum around that right and if there's space to reflect on that and and You know, the other story I tell people is it's interesting to see if you look at some of the outcomes of good career technical education kind of programs. You know, the thing that um, is ironic is a lot of times those young people, you would expect like, oh, you're just channeling them just into career. Like you're kind of limiting what their their worldview is and what, you know, learning to learn and all that. A lot of the data show is, you know, because of the self-efficacy gains that they get from being successful. A lot of those young people want to continue on in their education and keep going in all sorts of fields. So um, I just want to, you know, make sure that I emphasize that, you know, if you build this successfully, you're actually building up the capacity of, of young people to kind of open up the doors to different options um, through career learning.
0: Yeah, I think uh, this is really interesting timing. So we just interviewed, uh, I don't think the the show the episode's been released yet, but Sally Amoruso, um from the EAB, uh, she's she's talking about um, she advises university presence all across the country about. Have you met her before? Have you heard of her before? I've heard Someone, of her. Yes. Okay. Uh, I mean, she's she's just super super sharp. And what I appreciated what she did for me was thinking about. Um, she's advising universities about the importance of having a lifetime student, and so recognizing that your interaction. You know, my interaction with my university was four years or you know grad school a couple of years and then out whereas this model that you're talking about could lead to people really understanding the importance of being a lifetime student and you know kind of grow do and learn do and learn um, actually you could have just helped me answer my own challenging question as I try to study this.
1: I totally agree with you by the way it's just uh We're going to have, you know, one of the things we know about the future of work is it's going to require people to adapt more. Um, And they're not going to hold the same job as I'm an exception. You know, I've been with GFF for almost 20 years. You know, now it's knowledge work. Right. But I've had to I've even had to learn some new things along the way. You know, Um, that's just the way you got to stay fresh uh, in today's economy. So you're going to there is. Learning to learn that metacognition is a core competency uh, for success um, in, in, in in today's economy, for that matter, not to mention the future of work.
0: What do you think the importance of, this kind of goes back to our original question about the uh, dream big and be practical. Uh, we talked about with Sally about the importance of learning how to fail. Our whole system has learned, you know, I I wanted to get A's, I'm sure you did as well. So there's some classes where I didn't learn anything. I just learned how to figure out how to get an A. So I get the thing I wanted to do. Um, I see some real opportunities in the structure to learn how to fail well and safely. What, what role do you think learning how to fail falls into this vision of yours and what's the power of it for kids?
1: You know, it's, I have to admit to you, Dustin, I hadn't thought about it that way before, so I'm going to be real sloppy with you, which is, I guess is okay in the rules of a podcast. I really appreciate that observation, um, because I do think it fits. Um, it actually, you know, in some ways it, 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 um, it resonates with an earlier comment that I made to harken back to in this podcast, where I said, one of the things that I've loved about JFF, you know, you said wedding, the pragmatic kind of with the dreaming big and I think one of the bridges is learning how to f- fail fast. If you're gonna fail, like learn from what went wrong, prototype, you know, cause things invariably a lot will go wrong and it certainly won't go perfectly, but then what are you learning from that? And how do you change your behavior? And, um, you know, I think in some ways there's no, that's why there's um, in terms of the big blur, such a big emphasis on the experiential aspects you know, in many ways, it's an extension of the early college idea, right? It's sort of like the best way to succeed in higher ed is to do higher ed yep. with some support. The best way to get ready for the next step in a career and understand what your interest might be but to try some things out, you know, with some support. It doesn't always go um, as intended. And I think that can be a good thing as long as we structure it so that it doesn't become a consequence that's really hard to bear, like a student loan that you can't pay off because you didn't finish college. But I think, you know, I've heard people say a good outcome in a lot of this is the person who thought they wanted to be a nurse and he found out that he didn't like the sight of blood right on the work-based
0: learning, (laughs) work-based learning. That's a great outcome because then he's able to adjust. As you say that, I mean, I think about even my, uh, organic chemistry. I don't know if this is the same at your university, but all the, it was a sophomore weed out class for all my friends who wanted to be doctors. So you have everybody coming in freshman year saying I'm going to be a doctor. Then they are already a year of tuition, year and a half of tuition in, and then take org chem and realize, oh, no, I don't know what I want to do. To your point, that failure, if you're paying for your own uh, college, could be a really big, big problem, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Then the system that we have, be- and, you know, so some linear, it's supposed to be, you know, but that's where so many people fall off. It's really high stakes. How much time are you taking out? To, like, to, to learn to be qualified then to jump into the actual vocation and, and then understand, like, maybe it's not for me. Like, that's a lot of investment. And so we, I think we need a feature of whatever, whether it's the big blur or otherwise of our education training systems has to incorporate and integrate work and learning more seamlessly as people can't afford to drop out of the labor market for that long especially when you see you know I think there's a connection here we don't have as many babies anymore in the country there're not as many young people <laughs> coming up to replace people who are going to retire like me and you know not tomorrow but um, you know at some point in there there you know the pandemic kind of started to preview this as these labor market shortages that we have for skilled talent. so um, we need some we need some faster uh, solutions and connections.
0: And you kind of hinted at it. I just remember, so again, like I said, I'm in a lot of these kind of conversations uh, and feel so thankful to have come across your work and you now uh, to add more flavor to these deep challenges that we're trying to solve and particularly in urban communities across the country. I I wonder though, because someone brought up recently, why do we need to change it? Aren't we aren't we America? Aren't we the greatest nation in the world? Aren't, isn't our, I mean, you've heard this before. I just like think of this through, like I'm kind of throwing up a soft lob for you. Like what, what's the urgency for this? Why can't we just keep this system as is? Yeah, we just have, um, there's too much failure
1: in it. I mean, I cited some of the, you know, dynamics earlier. I can, you know, get you the stats later. They're, they're pretty bad. You know, when you have, there's only, you know, let's say roughly speaking, less than a 50% chance of you enter college as you complete, like that's really not good when you consider the escalating costs of college that are kind of undeniable statistic, which means more young people are taking out loans, you know, which means, and then you go down that logic chain and, you know, a bad, you know, with the least um, more than half the time the outcome is you left college early, dropped out, and you have a bunch of debt that you can't pay off. that that we can't keep operating like that, both from the perspective of individuals and and also the inequitable kind of ways that that hits different populations, uh, mostly affecting those who could least afford to have that outcome to begin with and they took a chance and then also our economy needs as much talent as it can get and it's not getting like that pipeline isn't bringing enough post-secondary trained educated workers to the doors of you know um employers who need skilled talent so as good as we you know i still think we are i have a lot of pride i think there are a lot of good things about our systems as well you know i think um, one could argue, right, that what also has made us great as a country, too, is is our uh, kind of never quenched thirst for innovating and improving as well until, until we don't have it anymore. <laughs> so, you know, but I, I think that that has also set us apart. Um, I didn't expect to go here, Dustin. It's interesting. But just in terms of global competitiveness. Yep. You know that kind of notion of you know we, when we're out on the innovative edge. I mean, look, not to brag about my state here, California, but we're right the fifth largest economy of the world. I mean, there's a, there one of the reasons is this this innovation uh, economy that we have out here. Um, uh, so I I think we have to keep that spirit uh, in order to stay competitive.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, in your research, again, I don't, I'm as short of an answer to this as possible or say pass, um, which has happened before Uh, what you've studied, like how our high school system was created, maybe a little bit about our traditional college system. What, what was it created to solve and how do we change the mindset to where you're trying to take us?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, in the industrial age, ironically, They probably said we had the same problem, (laughs) you know, which is we needed skilled workers and we needed educated workers. And, oh, there were these um, new things called high schools and um, they, you know, they could churn out people who could work in our factories pretty well. And they, you know, life skills and, you know, even some technical skills that we needed. Um, And lo and behold, communities started saying we need one of those because we need to be competitive nationally, we need to, you know, have, um, I'm oversimplifying, but I, you, get, you, get, you get my explanation. In some ways, they, at, at the time, they were solving the same problem. I was saying we have big time now. It's just that the t- technology has changed. The stakes have been raised. The skills have been raised so that you really need some post, you need post-secondary now to be as the threshold. And unfortunately, the way high schools grew up, it was just, you know, the system stopped there, and they said, "Well, that's the end of edu- that's the end of education that future workers need." Um, yep. And then, you know, inertia sets in.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I mean, even thinking come back to the lifetime student, I think about the number of times where I've thought about going back and getting a graduate degree, but the idea of stopping doesn't appeal to me because I love what I do so much. But it would be great to try to do both, right? Um, and so. I know I yearn for that often. And so I can only imagine what that would be like if my education career was basically based on a foundation where that was the expectation, um, which would be pretty fascinating. When you think about the U.S. right now, and maybe it's out in California or any other particular state, what are some good models of either districts, regions, or states that are trying to implement some of these ideas?
1: Yeah, I love that question. Um, there's so many I, I could name, but um, these come to mind. I mean, I think there are different approaches. One is I think in terms of you know, just a systems level kind of um, demonstration of what you can do when you align, try to integrate, um, get different kinds of institutions working together, making their funds flow in different ways, setting a common goal. Um, I think I know it's, it's Delaware Delaware is a small state, right? Yep. But it's very impressive what they've been able to do. In part because, in part because it's small, they have singular systems. But they've been able to make a sea change in terms of getting like I think it's it's got to be more now because this is an old statistic. Like it's at least a, t- uh, two years ago, like half of their students were in kind of career pathways that had attributes of the big blur. Yep. I would say with you know students doing college courses while they're in high school, focusing on a technical area, um, often, you know, with internship and other work-based learning experiences incorporated. And they're on their way to making this happen at scale. So I just think as a sit now, it is a state. So that's, that's scale. Um, I think there are other paths to it. Um, The state of Texas over the years has implemented, like, if you just take the early college design and kind of different um, cousins to it, some that were inspired by early college. Texas has gone all in on the kind of resources they put towards that, the technical assistance, the quality control. And they're at a place, it's interesting, where um, it's like the stat I would want to say, the estimate that I saw was about 20% of their high schools are like, have these kind of features. Wow. Now, granted, they're only serving a small fraction of students because the schools tend to be smaller. So it's something like it's under 10 percent of all the high school students. Yep. But that's so when you think about it, you know, that's been over 20 years, I would say. They're kind of on their way towards recasting a vision of what high school should be. Hmm. You know, when you get to those kind of numbers, I mean, I don't know what the magic tipping point is. But that's significant and I mean, Texas is huge. So I just think, you know, kind of like doing the replication of the models and doing it well with state support, um, it's really adding up to kind of a big movement there. Uh, and it could end up being a state proof point, if you will. Oh. And then I think there's states with interesting policies that um, might accelerate towards these kinds of um, systems level changes quick, quicker. Um, I know in Colorado, there's some interesting uh, policies and pilots that uh, uh, they're promoting, which I think have great promise. And you know, one that's really interesting is is making scholarship dollars available to um, older high school students to avail themselves of early college experiences and um, internships and the costs associated with those. So it's sort of like when you're when you're ready because early as tenth, eleventh grade, you can go, and start doing blur blur activity. They're blurring the lines, you know, through putting dollars, if you will, in the students' hands and sort of seeing what kinds of supports can they set up around that so that that goes well But putting putting those resources. and it'll be interesting to see how students vote with their feet about what kinds of things they ought to be doing when they're when they're older than high school, where, you know, by by a lot of accounts, not not everyone, but a lot of folks who are, recount their high school experience by 12th grade they're sort of saying what was i i don't know what the purpose was at that point other than prom which is important yeah <laughs> R- rituals rites of passage but you know not what we should be centering the whole experience around when uh their their uh future demands
0: very true that's something that you, know, you always think about as you suggest disruption so many people think of the, the rituals that they don't want to lose and instead of a Either or, it can be a both and. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, as a former high school teacher and then a district administrator, I, I wonder, or, you know, you know, I keep coming back to my wife and her friend right now. What's advice? What advice do you have for administrators or people within the systems to take some first steps to try to start blurring the lines if they are not in a position to really make broad policy changes currently?
1: yeah that's a great question. um the words uh that come to mind are invest in your partnerships so um it does i'm I'm acknowledging that it takes people power to kind of create the wiring yourself to create the kinds of experiences for students that the blur demands at scale, right? We're sort of saying it should be like this for everyone and the system should be designed to do this. Well, short of that, there are some really innovative and heroic, you know, people in school districts who have figured out ways. I wish it didn't have to be so hard for them, but it is because the systems aren't designed to enable it as a natural function of what they do, but they figured out, you know, ways to leverage resource, public resources, get some private resources, to set up employer partnerships, to set up early college partnerships with local community colleges, sometimes four-year colleges, and just being really savvy about um, maintaining the partnerships and investing in them so that uh, you can, you know, with with that kind of approach, you can end up serving a, a big proportion of your high school students in these kind of blur approaches.
0: Yeah, you, yeah, earlier, I didn't want to cite your own statistics, but the ones that I had written down that I really appreciated from uh, your report were talking about how uh, despite massive and public and private efforts to increase college completion, the rate of growth in attainment is slow and overall attainment remains unacceptably low. Here are the stats. Degree attainment is only 43.8% overall, 32.4% for Black people, 25.5% for Hispanics, Twenty-five percent for Native Americans. Uh, then said so the bottom forty percent of the U.S. population will graduate from college at the rate of only eleven point eight percent. Like I, I mean, to me, that's 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 crazy. That's crazy. And so, what's our solution? Our solution can't be just keeping doing as is, right? Yeah, exactly. And and, and I think a lot of the
1: kinds of. Uh, Approaches that have been tried locally, some of which I have described here, you know, they get far better results. The problem is, it's like they're a small portion; they're serving a small portion of high school students right now right. in the country. So, in some ways, you know, you can tell I'm, I'm working all angles here, Dustin. I mean, what you know, one is yes, let's keep cheering on those um, kinds of schools. I mean, I'll even name like some of the most successful charter school networks in the country that, you know, I'll I'll name one, like Kip, right? Everybody knows Kip. And, you know, they, I, I really have to applaud them. Some years ago, they said, we're not, you know, our students, we're getting them into college, but they're not doing well <laughs> when they go. And we're trying to figure out what can we do about that? And I, you know, they, they've designed some scaffolding, they put some resources in there to support their graduates. And even extending, as I understand it, like, you know, let's Let's make an extra year, you know, like a grade thirteen, to try to offer some support to our graduates to get some momentum in post-secondary. So I just uh, think that that's that's one route, um, including more early colleges, the things that I was talking about earlier that got me started off on my career. I just fear like that's not enough. We have to do that, right? They will, they can amount like in Texas over time, they can amount. To serving a pretty significant, notable number of uh, students in the country. And then I am also, though, as you could tell in the big blur report, pushing for in places that have the conditions, couldn't we go for something more dramatic and create new kinds of like, it's not like, you know, these things, now we built the systems around them. They're so hard to shift, even though, you know, they kind of grew up like that story I told about the comprehensive high school back in the day in the industrial age, you know, the systems grew up around them. Yep. So what what would be the, you know, a few disruptions we could put out there that would actually create something more sensible for the needs of young people in our economy today?
0: Well, I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about the pain. I think people make choices for change, whether it's to avoid pain or run to gain, right? And so uh, I'm, I think about uh, from my vantage in the K-12 world, you know, there's a lot of pain that we are, you know, where kids are going off and not being successful as we know they can be. And there's gain to think about the life-changing prospects of giving them the right tools and support to be successful in any career path. From a, let's say a community college or a four-year college standpoint, what's what's the gain there for them as you see it? Because right now, I assume most of them feel like, well, we got plenty of folks uh, let's just keep churning them out. What's when you talk to folks in that lens? What what are the the talking points for their business side of their work?
1: Yeah, it's not universal, but I'll throw a couple out there that are real. I think um, right now, and, and one is, you know, if you actually look, and in some some parts of the country, this is acute. We felt, but they're they're not as many. I mentioned, not, you know, we're not. There are not as many babies anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that we're raising in this country. And yep. so it's led to enrollment problems, enrollment challenges for, especially for community colleges and broad access institutions. Yep. Um, the more elite you get and selective, right? They're not having any problem. In fact, right. they're having, they're more competitive than than ever, right? So right. those are serving, you know, students who come from, by and large, pretty privileged backgrounds. So that's an exclusive sort of separate pipeline, right? But the big one, it's just, um, there's pain being felt by, you know, a lot of colleges that, and through, that the pandemic exacerbated. And we're not sure if it's really temporary. Some of the numbers are bouncing back in some of the places now that we're kind of out of the deep pandemic. But some of them are not because the underlying seismic demographic shifts were already there and already happening. Um, so that is a I forget the phrase you use, but that's a gain. I think that's a pain that could be a gain. Um, it's why it's why you see, and I think, yeah, but it's because what I look at, so of course that's what you look at when you're a researcher or whatever, it's, you see what you want to see is confirmation bias. But I would say there's some people would agree with me, like it's a re, one of the reasons why you see the growth of dual enrollment, yep. which is community colleges saying, hey, there are all these high school students next door, You know, let's serve them. If they're in a state where the where the financing pays for them to serve those students, which in many cases, increasingly, it is, you know, that's a win for them. Um, and you know, a lot of them. I also don't want to say there's just financial motivation. There's also like, hey, the, the pressure is on community colleges to do have better completion rates, yep. and dual enrollment is one way that they know they can um, actually achieve that, and it's through the through the research. So it's a, it's a dual win, you know, and then a lot of circumstances. So that's, that's one gain. Um, I think a lot of the four-year sector, probably not as, you know, as much as I'll intimate now, but some of them, there are, there is an increasing uh, awareness of employer discontent, I would say with, you know, the, the product they're producing, if you will, I hate to put it (laughs) in such a business terms and, you know, the, Trying to under, and it's hard for them to move and be so adaptable uh, to to business needs and you know and sometimes you know they that's not their sole purpose so you know they do uh, you know going back hearkening back to our liberal art liberal arts conversation as well they have a broader mission but you know I think they sense that hey there is a part of our market that maybe we need to serve better and how can we do that and furthermore there are competitors. Very in the space, sort of saying, hey, we can get you a post-secondary credential in shorter time, get you the skills. There are employers who are willing to look at what you can do, not necessarily whether or not you have a BA. Yep. And let's, you know, maybe come more come 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 to us instead. And you won't have to spend as much money and you can get started on a career earlier. Um, so there's some competition. We have to look closely at those models to make sure they're delivering as they said they as they say they can. You know, but at the same time, it's also raising questions around, well, what are our traditionals doing? How good did they do on that measure? So there's so a lot of more scrutiny.
0: In, in this vision of yours and uh, your teams, does does this serve all students? It, would your Would your expectation, again, in your dream of dreams, that this is what the system looks like, 11 through 14 everywhere, or this just needs to be a serious option everywhere?
1: Yeah, I, great question, Dustin. So on any given day, I'll answer this maybe a little bit differently.
0: <laughs> That's good, that means oh, you're I mean, a thinker, you're getting new information, you <laughs> got new opinions, it's great. I
1: go back and forth on it. Well, I mean, I think rhetorically, I know rhetorically, we say we say all on purpose, just to get people thinking differently, like, isn't, isn't this an education that kind of education that should be for everybody? You know, so even those young people who go off of have Harvard in their sights, you know, all the elites and in reality, they probably wouldn't want to do something like this. But, you know, our bet is, is that there would be a lot of young people who find this appealing that we have more of a clear connection to a career path and understanding why am I doing this? You know, in my education, um, and having a better, clearer answer and path to that, um, in actuality, I guess I already started intimating a little bit. I mean, I think it would be a, a big win if it became the predominant mode, even if not the exclusive mode. I think there could be multiple pathways, in fact, and this could be one one of the big ones that would recreate that transition, you know, and, and um, uh, seam that exists now that we want to blur between the later years of high school into college and into the next step as a career. Um, creating more of a fluid, you know, kind of permeable system. I think that would be important in the American context. So we don't inadvertently start to track, you know, young people who are of a certain race, ethnicity, you know, into, oh, you should go into that one. (laughs) You know, I I think what we want are more paths to economic advancement for all. I know that, um, And uh, we may not, you know, like just defining one path is probably not optimal.
0: Well, I think, um, again, as I explained, I have a unique background in terms of working in urban education for a while, but uh, first and foremost, what's compelling to me about this is that the world is changing. The world of work is changing. The needs are changing. How we learn is changing. And so I love that you guys are taking a, a bold step out there to, to say, well, here, here's an idea. I think second, just what you said, I, I feel like this, this the stats that I shared from your report earlier show that we're failing a huge part of this population with our current system. So I love, again, how do we create opportunities where all sorts of career paths are available to no matter what zip code you grew up in or what skin color you have, and so that really excites me. Um, and then third, I you know I was thinking for myself like, well, you know, I keep pushing back. My wife has loves her liberal arts education. I went to SMU and studied finance, so I kind of jive with where your head's at. But I still like my four year experience, and so part of me you know thinks how could this work for me. But I go back and think sophomore year of high school to junior year, I grew up a lot. And so if I could start again, that 11 to 14, I know you touch on this in your report, but that 11 to 14 area is a really hot spot for maturation. And it that's a perfect timing, it feels. I don't think it's just me. I think it's what you've noticed in your research to, to try something like this or to take a step out and have this kind of responsibility. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And thanks for being such a deep reader of our our report. Yeah, there is. I mean, that that was the rationale, Dustin. It it really, we thought that that was um, a developmental sweet spot, if you will. And why one of the reasons why we focused on it and, you know, not coincidentally, one of the reasons why we see some promising models that are, even though they're not in a grade 11, 14 system, they're kind of doing that, you know, whether it be early college or this kind of career pathways that we promote. So I don't think there's a coincidence there.
0: Before we wrap up, uh, uh, I I just geeked out again. I don't geek out on everything, but I geeked out on this report. And so I sent it to my wife and she's like, I got to read 65 pages. I'm like, first off, it's really easy to read. Um, I sent it to my mom, who is down at United Way in Florida. So uh, to, to think about for her community, I thought it was really neat. For anybody who's trying to figure out, should I peek over the fence? Tell tell them why they should either read the report or point them to a better resources. For I know there's an executive summary, but uh, point them someplace.
1: Yeah, thanks, Dustin. I've done a, I've done a couple of op-ed pieces that are related, which might be a little bit more accessible. And then you know, it's like <laughs> anything else. If you get oh, there's there are some uh, YouTube videos as well, presentations. So if someone has a half an hour. They can maybe, I usually finish that presentation in, you know, a good 15, 20 minutes. So that's a nice Reader's Digest version. And I'm happy to share that with you as resources as part of this podcast, if you'd like.
0: Yeah, that would be awesome. All right, before we let you go, last quick questions. Uh, we ask everybody this season, what are your habits or disciplines that you use on a daily basis that help you be the best version of yourself?
1: Yeah, one is just, um, there is a discipline that, pro- it, it helps clear my head and it keeps me healthy and energetic around the work. So I have to exercise every day. So, you know, I, I run four to five times a week. I love going on bike rides. The Bay area is beautiful. I am privileged to live in the Hills uh, of the East Bay and uh, take it on as a challenge every once, like once every other weekend or so to go riding up those, those Hills and taking in the beautiful views and, it just uh, puts me in a different kind of physical obviously and mental space to be able to to you know focus on the things that I really are a passion of mine, like yeah. like what we've been talking about today.
0: I've had a couple of close friends go move out there to work in the education world and the East Bay is no joke in terms of hills. That's what I was gonna say. I don't know if that's as enjoyable as you describe it, but uh, I guess if you have the endurance and have practice plenty, it can be enjoyable. but I remember it was pretty tough last time I was there. <laughs> it's more fun going downhill. I'll yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Uh what is a book or two that you've either read throughout your life or recently that you think other people should check out?
1: Oh boy. I um I, all I can think of is a book that I'm reading now that I happen to like, which is about uh Oppenheimer. Um and he I guess I, I would recommend it even though I'm only like you know two chapters in. Yeah. But his um you know, obviously what he accomplished is so fascinating and unique in world history. And, um, you know, you can imagine what he's one of those few people where you say what what you can imagine what a world might've looked like without him, you know, and I just find that I've always been fascinated by his life in that way. And then to go and actually read up about where he came from and some of the, um, Trials and Tribulations, he's, you know, mental health, it sounds like mental health issues that he went through as an older adolescent, yep. you know, not coincidentally, it's just been, I've been quite uh, startled by that and and uh, consumed all of a sudden, which is good because I think I, I still have, uh, you know, 400 pages to go. <laughs> but so far, so far, so good. And I would highly recommend it.
0: Is this an Isaacson book? Because anybody talks about these long, when you say you got 400 pages left, I think of anything that Walter Isaacson's written.
1: You know, I should, why can't, I cannot even, I'm ashamed, I can't remember the author's name who wrote
0: the biography. Oh, don't, don't worry about it, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll dive into it, but when you said it, uh, I mean, he. if you've not checked out his stuff on Einstein and others, like there's just really good work. Anyways, sorry, I, I digress. All right, when you're, you know, riding into work, riding the hills, walking, running, If you listen to music, I want to know what type of music or what type of artists or what songs are on your playlist right now.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm either listening to the Beatles, I'm old school. I'm either listening to the Beatles or I'm listening to old school soul
0: music,
1: (laughs) soul and RB.
0: That's awesome. Well, define old school because I put on Boys to Men the other day for my kids, and they told me that was old school and that would not meet my definition. But so. they were very clear about this is old, dad. <laughs>
1: oh, no, I mean, and then I'm ancient school. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I'm I'm like, a, I'm earth, wind and fire. I'm even down to the drifters or stylistics, you know, all the Philly soul groups, uh, stacks, yeah. muscle shoals, all uh, those
0: folks. <laughs> absolutely. My my wife and I uh, just talked about muscle shoals recently. We uh, we love all of that. And I would say you your description was perfect. I just thought it was funny that, Uh, something came up and I just told my boys about boys, the man, they're like, that is so old. Like, really? That's old school. Okay. Moving on. Last question. You're someone who's around thought leaders all the time. You're exposed to thought leadership all the time. Uh, this is a podcast about leadership and specifically change leadership of failing forward, trying things. What's the best piece of advice you have for any leader who's just, you know, it could be some advice that you've read recently, you've heard, or something that you just wanted to share with anybody who will listen to you?
1: (laughs) Hey, I love that. I love having that moment. I guess I can think of any number of things, but the one that pops to mind right now is just um, changes take time and you need to be patient and have some continuity of vision. And um, you will see, you know, if you stick with it and get the right partnerships, you'll see change. Um, but it can, you know, I know it sounds corny, but it can feel sometimes like, you know, one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward. But, you know, I would say even from this privileged perch that I've been at and on at JFF, you know, we're not in there every day on the ground like folks, like back in the day when you were in a school and district administrator, Dustin, we, we cheer those folks on, try to create those enabling conditions. But, you know, we've had our, we've had bad days and where you just feel like you're banging your head against the wall. And then there are moments like we've had in the last few months where there's a lot of interest in this vision that we've laid out in the big blur that just is gratifying personally. So I know we got to use that moment. It's my responsibility to try to push as many changes as I can in that moment when there's an open window.
0: Well, I, I appreciate your heart behind the work. So I think that's clear if anybody has watched your videos. I've actually watched those as well. I just kept it more on the report. So whether they watched you, listened to you, read uh, what you put down there, it's clear that your heart is in this. And also it's clear that your head is in this in terms of the research and being thoughtful and the different ideas. So I appreciate what you do, as you can tell, um, and I just encourage you to keep doing it. And uh, for those of you who are listening, we will have uh, links and the show notes so that you can go and find out more about JFF and the the big blur and anything else. Is there anywhere else you want to point folks right now before I let you go and have your day?
1: No, that sounds great, Dustin. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat today. That was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, Joel, this was awesome. Thanks for making time and we'll see you soon.
1: Okay, thanks Dustin.
0: Have a great day. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel Uh, podcasts on Apple or Spotify and help us celebrate the beautiful messy work of shaping human potential.